So it is really good to be together. And, you know, it takes a pandemic to shove us inside, give us this ability to just be able to speak about Jesus in this community. And I'm just really thankful. I'm really thankful to see you all. I'm really thankful to be here. I invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of First Peter, if you have a Bible. Um, if you go to uh, there's a banner at the top, uh, which will have a, a link that you can click, and it will get you to that PDF, which has an outline of the sermon, including the sermon text uh, for today. So however you want to do that, uh, we are in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Adjust this here. And so as you uh, turn there, I want to uh, read... 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dive right in. So, the Word of God says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love is due to sins, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. God may be glorified through Jesus. This is the word of God. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you for this moment here of the ends of the earth, the clouds that we see, the sky that we stare at, our bodies. You are the creator that we owe all of our allegiance to. And so, Father, I just ask, I ask in this moment that you would come. Calm our hearts, come in power. We need you so desperately, whether we know it or not. I ask that you would save those who do not know you. I ask that you would strengthen your people. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. That's right. At least somebody's decided to be here. So, everybody else feel free to talk loud and uh, talk back. I like feedback. So, I was reading a book. As I was reading this book, it told a story. Story of child who was playing kickball. And many of us have had dreams like this when playing kickball, it's down to one out, bases loaded kind of moment, and the ball is kicked in the air. If it is caught, it's a game. Drop it, you've blown it, and the other team wins. So the story went like this, this little child, the ball's in the air, what this child would normally do is run away from the ball. This child just unconsciously just stepped underneath the ball, and the ball lands in the kid's arms, and she squeezes and catches it. And everybody erupts in joy, besides the losing team, of course, and they all come and they grab her and they jump up and down and they're screaming because they just won the game. And you know in those moments, it's in those moments when all of a sudden everything just kind of goes still. Like there's a peace in the heart, there's a joy, everybody's celebrating, you forget who you hate, and you only think about who you love, and that's like this euphoric moment. And we've had these moments in our lives. For some of us, it was finishing that exam and getting through the class. For others of us, it was graduation. For others of us, it was our wedding day. We've been waiting to get married and finally got married. For others of us, it was having a child, and that child came, and it was euphoric, and it was wonderful, and it was just peaceful, and the music was playing. But then there comes that moment, some moment where it could be a few seconds, it could be a few minutes, 
but the music that's playing, you hear the needles scratch across, and it's just like, and everything stops, because reality hits, right? Oh no, I've got to learn how to take care of this kid. Or, okay, I'm married and now we're fighting all the time. Or, oh wait, that kid that was just now celebrating me, we still don't like each other. You know, whatever it is, those euphoric moments come to a crashing halt. The question is, why? Why? Why is there a crash? Why does the vacation have to end? Why does marriage get hard? Why do kids require so much work? Why do jobs come and go and deadlines stress us out? C.S. Lewis says it this way, if you find in this world something that cannot fully satisfy, then you were probably meant for another world. And this is the reality. These things come, this euphoric moment on this earth comes to a crashing halt because of sin. Sin has broken our world, devastated our relationships, and left us so sick that every human on the planet will die because of it. Sin is not only breaking God's commands, but it is also out of order loves of our hearts. And you and I get it. If a parent pushes a kid down a flight of steps in order to grab his or her cell phone, you would be like, what in the world was that? That's broken. That's sick. What are you doing? Why? Because it makes sense that you don't love things more than people. It's a disordered love. When you love things more than people, and you love people more than God, it's a sign that you are sicker than COVID could ever make you. We lust, we lie, we cheat, we kill us, we get discontent, we grumble and complain, we get angry, we get bitter, we sever relationships, we want things that are not ours, we will do what we can to get ahead of others, and all of this just seems like the normal thing to do. Because that's the message that everything around us is saying. But it's normal because we're all sick. And because of sin, it's destroying the fabric of our world and rotting us from the inside out. So why? Why would we cheat on God like this? Why would we put ourselves above others like this? One pastor named Brian Chappell says this. The reason you sin is because you love it. You and I sin not because somebody else made you do it. Not because somebody else made me do it. You and I sin because we love to sin. We love it. And that's why Peter here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 says this. The end of all things is near. Why does he say the end of all things is near? Because sin is so corrupt. It is so devastating. It is breaking our own souls everything around us. It is so bad that the only thing that is just towards that sin is a judgment. And so there will come an end to everything that we see and that end will be the judge creator of the universe judging the living and the dead because we have committed adultery on God. God is being patient with us right now. The fact that sinners can hear this message and turn from sin and find forgiveness is nothing short of a miracle. It's a mercy. It's God's patience. Because as Peter has just said, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is near. Because of sin, the God of the universe will judge the living and the dead. And we have rejected our Creator. And we have believed the lie that we are the greatest. But our sin is breaking everything 
And that's partially what Peter means and is highlighting here when he says the end of all things is at hand. The coming judgment is possible at any time. It's near. It's the end of a problem. And we sin because we love it. And that's hard to hear, but it's actually great news. It's great news because it clarifies that the power over that greater love to go after. So, that means there would be power over sin. If there was one who was so beautiful that every other beauty pales in comparison, if there was one so great that every other great thing is simply an echo of his substance, if there is one like this that can save us from shame and guilt and deliver us from the judgment that sin deserves, if there's one worthy of our affection, then the good news is, in the midst of such a broken and suffering world, there is someone to save us, rescue us. There's someone who can overcome sin. Sin sick hearts, there is hope. That's the point of this passage. That's the point of the Bible. There is hope. You and I love sin, but there's a greater love to be had, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And that's why a famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said this. If I could have one thing, it would not be money. It would not be money because it cannot relieve me of my anxiety. It can't take away and get rid of all of my pain. It can't get rid of all of my concerns. If I could have one thing, it wouldn't be money. And if I could have one thing, it would not be fame. Because just ask somebody who's really famous if they get a lot of peace and a lot of rest. Rest is elusive. If I could have one thing, he says, it would not be money and it would not be fame. It would be that God is always with me. Because if I knew the creator of the universe, the satisfier of the human soul, the love of loves, the one who is worthy of all affection is with me, then I can face anything that comes my way. And all of his promises are true. And he is telling us that the end of all things is at hand. We are steeped in sin and in our rebellious hearts that we are refusing to turn. That phrase is a terrible phrase. It's a terrifying phrase. Because it's at hand. It could be at any moment that you could face the judge of the living and the dead. But for those of you who would repent of your sin and trust in Christ, you are not only made a child now, but you will be with him forever. And he says the end of all things is at hand. And you're meant to look at that with anticipation and longing and joy and hope. This is what Peter means when he says the end of all things is near. Death is terrifying if on the other side you face eternal judgment. But if Jesus died in our place which he did. If he lived the perfect life, which he did. If he rose from the dead, which he did. Three days later, showing his power over Satan and over death. Then when you hear the end of all things is near, it's not a moment of fear, but a moment of anticipation. So do you trust him? Do you repent of your sins? Do you run after Jesus? Do you cast yourself on him in trust? Some of you are sitting in chairs. You have placed your faith in that chair. You are surrendering all of your weight into that chair. You've placed your faith there. 
And this is what Peter is laying out. The end of all things is at hand. Will you lay your spiritual weight solely, all, completely in the hands of Jesus? Just like you did with that chair. You're not thinking right now, oh no, oh no, oh no. Well, you probably are now that I mentioned it. But you're probably not thinking, oh no, it's going to give way, it's going to give way, it's going to give way. You just trusted it. You just sat there. Jesus will not give way. He will not give way. Surrender your heart wholly to Him. To Him who Peter's already told us will give us a never-ending, never-diminishing, unfading inheritance. This is beautiful. And Peter is saying to a suffering people, the end of all things is near. And it's meant to evoke fear from the rebellious, but it's meant to evoke anticipation and longing from his children. So, when he says that, he also is putting this forward because if you have this understanding that the end of all things is at hand, it will affect how you live in the here and now. It will affect your right now. One commentator said this, The imminent arrival of the end is not simply a call to look into heaven or to wait until Jesus returns. Instead, believers are to be self-controlled and may be devoted to prayer and maximize their usefulness in God's kingdom. If you know that the end is coming, it affects how you are now. And that's where we go. Peter is putting forward in this passage, how are we to live now? We're to remember that the end of all things is at hand. Two, we are to draw near to him, draw near to the heart of Christ. And three, we're supposed to display the heart of Christ. So we're on point two. I just smuggled in number one on you just like that. Wasn't that amazing? Just went right through it. Okay, now we're at point two. Drawing near to the heart of Christ. How are we to live now? We are to draw near to the heart of Christ. So here at Church in Christ Church, if you're a guest with us, we believe the Bible is the Word of God, and so we just seek to work through books of the Bible. And so if you would just look at that passage, we're going to move from verse 7, which says the end of all things is at hand, and we're going to move on to now verse 8. Verse 8 says this. Above all, well, we're actually in the end of verse 7. It says, therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What do these two words mean? As you study them deeper and how they're used in other passages, the translation should actually be reversed. The first one is about a sober mind, and the second one is about a, a self-controlled action. So one is self-control or controlling your mind. The other one is controlling your actions. First word, sober-minded. It's the word that's used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Preparing your minds for action. It's this idea there. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 is also where this appears. And if you remember Romans chapter 12, verse 2, for those of you who are followers of the Bible, it's where renewing your mind by the Bible. As you renew your mind, you're transformed. And then it says this, verse 3, not to think of himself or herself more highly than they ought to think, but to think with sober-mindedness or sober judgment. So what is connected to this sober thinking is a humility. I'll say it again. How are we to live in light of the end? It's with sober-mindedness, and at the essence of sober-mindedness is humility. We had our pastor's praying plan. We do these three times a year. 
and each one of the pastors bring a, like a five-minute word. And Pastor Hunter brought a, a word from the book of Job. Yes, it was a very uplifting moment, and uh, so he brought it from the book on suffering. And so as we looked at the book of Job, I found it immensely helpful for understanding this moment right now. What is sober-mindedness? Well, I want you to listen to a few of the verses. The setting is this. Job is questioning if God is doing the right thing and allowing this suffering to come. And God finally just addresses Job. And God's primary aim is this. I'm bigger than you. And here's what he says. Have you, Job, entered the storehouses of snow or have you seen the storehouses of hail? Now just process that. Our God is saying, I've got a place where I'm storing all the hail and the snow. Have you ever been there? Job's like, oh no, have have no clue who that is. Never been. God keeps going. What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Have you been there, Job? The answer is no. Job verses 1 and 2. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you guys? You know there's a mountain goat probably right now on the side of a Himalayan mountain that's giving birth, and did you know that? God's like, I know that. He says, did you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill, and do you know the time when they give birth? And then he goes on and he says, okay. So shall a fault finder contend with God Almighty? What shall I answer you, O God? I put my hand on my mouth. This is sober-mindedness. This is where he is in his word. The smaller you feel and the greater he becomes. Now you know you're ready. Now you know you're ready. Ready to think about the world rightly ready to be used by him. Friends, I can't control what happens in my own what happens in my own home. I don't know what happens in my neighbor's home, let alone what happens a hemisphere away. Like I have no clue. I am small, but our God is great. He says he know he numbers and has ordained the number of hairs on our head. He knows them. No jokes need to be given. He just knows them all. Are you bold enough? Paul Tripp says this. We don't go to God because he is our equal. We go to God because he is our God. So when you stop in your sober-mindedness, it's meant to run you to the place of prayer. It's meant to run you into prayer. You don't go to God in prayer because God is your equal. You go because you are desperate before Him and He can do what you cannot. And now when your mind is renewed by the Scriptures, it will lead to self-controlled actions. That's why it says sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Just when you think about self-control, think about your senses. What you look at, are you self-controlled? What you eat and drink, are you self-controlled? What you touch, are you self-controlled? What you actively participate in, are you self-controlled? What you listen to, 
Are you self-controlled? And what that means is what you set your mind upon, what you do with your actions. Do they honor the Lord? And as Pastor Travis laid out for us last week, are you participating in some self-denial? The walk of a Christian must include self-denial. It's not immediate gratification and it's not self-indulgence. It is self-control. It's a controlled mind and a controlled body. So what do we do, friends? What do we do when we know the end is near? Peter says we should live with a self-control, with a self, a sober-mindedness and a self-control. It's a watchfulness that we're under attack. It's a watchfulness. Now, when you look at a list like this, what is happening here in this book is all of these are just commands. You're going to be commanded to love your neighbor. You're going to be commanded to show hospitality. You've already been commanded to be sober-minded and self-controlled. You're going to be commanded to use your gifts of speaking for the Lord. You're going to be commanded to use your gifts of service for the Lord. And when all of these commands come, here's the temptation. We're all tempted to run to a mental report card. And you begin to grade yourself. You're like, okay, in self-controlled mind, I'm a B-. minus. In self-controlled uh, actions, I might be uh, a B plus. And you're probably comparing yourself to your neighbor, and so it's like, okay, I'm doing okay here. But when it comes to loving everyone, okay, I might be a C minus. When it comes to showing hospitality, I could be a D. And now you're just running through this. And what happens is, where you've graded yourself low, you're tempted to be self-condemning and a failure, just constantly weighing there. And when you grade yourself high, you could be tempted with self-righteousness. But what we're meant to be doing, if all you hear from this message is how to be a better person, then we've missed the point altogether. The point of this passage is how do we get so near the heart of Jesus? How do we get so near to Him that He empowers and equips and enables us to do the very things that He is asking us to do here in this passage? Do not hear do better. Hear get desperate. Be small. Get near to the heart of God and watch Him empower you to do the very things that we will hear about in this passage. The sober-mindedness and the self-control is meant to lead you. It's meant to lead you to pray. Why does Paul mention, or why does Peter mention prayer here? Do you see that in the book? Look at the Bible. It says, "Therefore, end of all things is near. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your." You can say it with me just for exercise. Prayers, that's it. For the sake of your prayers. Why does he mention prayer here? Because the Christian life is about being with Jesus. And prayer is not one more religious duty. It's the opportunity to commune with the living God. To be with Him. To know that He loves you. And our sin. The lack of self-control. The lack of sober-mindedness. It is a barrier to intimate communion with God. And so he is saying, be sober-minded, be self-controlled, because as you have those things, your intimacy with the Lord only deepens and broadens. And I want you to experience the love of God in rich, deep, and full ways. Therefore, be sober-minded and self-controlled. You know what it's like if you ever go on a vacation? You want to do what with your work? You want to finish it so it's not hanging over your head when you go on vacation. In the similar way, sin begins to hang over your head. It begins to hang over the moment. I'm not saying you've got to clean yourself up 
and before you can get to God. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what happens is sin becomes a weight on the shoulders. It's like a 50-pound weight that you're trying to run a race with, and all of a sudden you're just exhausted. You're weighed down, and it affects your ability to run free. If you take the weight off, then all of a sudden you're able to run with freeness. Sin weighs us down. It affects our intimacy and communion. And the beauty is, you go to God when you're struggling in sin, and you call out to Him, and you watch Him change you, and then as He begins to change you, you also go to God, because then the relationship is deeper and broader and wider and fuller, and you experience His love in greater ways. It's like if you're sitting having a private conversation, or you're kind of trying to preach a sermon, and a fire engine runs through, you know? All of a sudden, it's like, this is quiet intimate moment that you're talking all of a sudden you're yelling like this right here because you can't hear this is what sin does it, it kind of clogs the ears it brings a cacophony into this moment of peace and rest and joy so Peter says for the sake of your prayers be sober minded and self control be sober minded and self control so what do we do knowing that the end of all things is at hand we draw near to the heart of Christ in prayer and the last thing, finally, that we do, finally, what do we do when we know that the end of all things is at hand? We not only draw near to God in prayer, near to the heart of Christ in prayer, but we display the heart of Christ. When you get so near to God and you see His love, then what happens is you realize the purpose of your life is to live as a living drama to the rest of the world to show off that love. That's where we are now. First Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Let's just stop right there. Above all. Some big words. Above all. Every other pursuit, every other study. After you are near to the heart of God, what is our next step? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Above all, love. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Friends, we must stop taking our cues from social media and the hateful rhetoric we see on TV and the news and YouTube. Love one another earnestly is to say no to cancel culture. It is to say no to, okay, you don't agree with me? Done. I'm done with you. You don't think like I do? Done. I'm done with you. You hurt me with what you said? Done. I'm done with you. It's cancel culture. It's not a conversation. We can't handle people disagreeing with us. We just cut them off. Done. You're going to vote differently than me? Done. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. It's hate. It's not love. When the scriptures say, love one another earnestly, it is a message of perseverance, not done. Done means I won't talk to you. Done means I will just be mad at you. Done can mean I'm going to misrepresent you and shame you. But it's not pursuing one another in love. Love one another earnestly is a pursuit. It's a perseverance. But it's not a cancel culture. It's not an I'm done with you. It's the opposite. 
It's asking, how can I be the change that we seek here in this church rather than I'm out? How can I help be a part of the solution? How can I be a part of the conversation with respect and gentleness? It's taking your exhaustion to the Lord, but still choosing love. This love is much more than a feeling. Because you can be mad at someone, and you can dislike the things that they said or did, and still be required to love. Love is a choice. It is not an ooey-gooey emotion. I'm sorry, the ooey-gooey emotions, they leave pretty quickly. It's continuing to put others' needs above your own. Peter says, above all, love. He says this because if you know the heart of Christ, if you know his earnest love for you, if you are at his feet in prayer and experiencing his grace day by day by day, then you will know a never giving up love because you will know that you don't deserve it. You will know that you deserve to be canceled because of how you and I treat the Lord day after day. And when you realize His love that washes over you day by day, then all of a sudden, as you are near to the heart of God, you are empowered to display the heart of Christ to your neighbor. And so, that's why He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, at the feet of Jesus, love one another. Love one another. Because love is of God. You know He's not given up on you. And so don't give up on others. Love keeps things together and it doesn't divide. Love seeks to draw near. Love seeks to pray for. And here's an aspect of love that is so hard. Look at what the passage says. Love covers a multitude of other people's sins. Love covers our own sins. That's a great message. <laughs> the harder one to apply is relationally, love covers somebody else's sins. With other believers, love doesn't point out every wrong, nor does it exaggerate wrongs. It can overlook them. An angry word is spoken in the midst of somebody's deep suffering. We can overlook because we've been shown grace. An anxious heart in the middle of crazy circumstances, we can overlook. Make no mistake, both are sin. But love covers. And that love doesn't point out everything that we see. Love endures. It sticks with. It seeks to create the family that we long for. And we are kept from this by remembering that our perspective must begin with we have a log in our eye and someone else has a speck in theirs. When we begin to see that dynamic, then all of a sudden, it doesn't mean you cannot correct someone. On the contrary, it just says when you have that perspective, I've got a log in my eye, they have a speck in theirs, then you are able to have the wisdom to know when to speak in and when not to. When to point out. And usually that's when patterns of sin happen. You need to speak in. That's love. But here, sometimes things we forget is to correct. But other times things we forget is what this passage says. Love covers a multitude of sins. As 
one pastor said, sanctification doesn't come in lists. If you're constantly telling somebody, hey, you got to work on this, 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 you probably aren't aware as much as you are of the grace of God in your life, and you're not obeying this passage. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, love, Christ says. So, one would be a rough place. It would not be a pleasant place to be. And so many times people would knock on somebody's door and you would have to host somebody. Especially other believers who were passing from town to town. So, and we're going to, you know, back then they couldn't watch something, but you get the analogy. You sit down, we're going to do something as a family, knock at the door. Hey, can I come in? I need cramped rooms, going to get even more cramped. Show hospitality and do it without problem. Now I get it. We live in different times in many ways. But I think the takeaways are these. Our homes should be less about us and should be used for mission. Our homes should be less about us and they should be used for mission. I'm not describing what that means and what that looks like. You allow the Spirit of God to take that. The second thing that it means, our lives should be choosing inconvenience, awkward conversations, intentional friendships, bold, unashamed, loving gospel conversations, because we so desperately want believers and unbelievers to treasure Christ. We so desperately want people to be spared of a coming judgment, and we want God's people to persevere to the end. We so want that, that we are going to show hospitality, even though it's going to cost us. Peter says, show hospitality without grumbling. And you know what the great news is? Our Savior was a picture of this. He was the most hospitable. He was the one that was called a friend of sinners. He was the one that sat with tax collectors and sinners. And as he sat with them, even the legalistic Pharisees said, what are you doing? And he's like, it's the sick who need to be made well. I'm going to sit with these individuals. He was kind to them. He spoke the good news to them. The Christian life is not just word and it's not just deed. It's word and deed. Jesus laid this out and this is what's included when he says show hospitality to one another. Now finally, Peter says, church, the end of all things is at hand. Draw near to the heart of Christ, but also display the heart of Christ. Not only in loving one another with perseverance earnestly, earnestly, not giving up, not only in showing hospitality, but the Spirit of God. If you're a child of God, the Spirit of God has come and lived inside of your heart, and He has given you gifts, and those gifts must, I say it again, those gifts must be used, leveraged for the glory of God's name. And this is where he goes now, when he says this, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks is the one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So, what we need to notice is this. God is the giver. And God has given you Christian gifts. He's given you the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit has given you gifts, speaking gifts.
gifts or serving gifts to be used uniquely for him. The point here is really precious because he doesn't save a people into a static life, into a boring existence. He saves us with a purpose, a purpose to display the heart of Jesus with every fiber of our being as long as he gives us breath. We have a significant purpose and it revolves around Jesus. And the saddest news in all of the universe is that so many people are grasping for what is their purpose because they're trying to find it outside of Christ at the center. And oh, what good news we have when we say you're looking for purpose. It's going to be found when Jesus is at the center of your life. And when you surrender to him, he comes and takes up residence and he gives you gifts. And he is your purpose. And he will empower you to do what you've been called to do. You see this. You've been created for a purpose. You've been gifted and given gifts. And so this is our prayer, Christian. This is our prayer. It's from Paul Tripp's book, Morning Mercies. And he says this. When I stop to pray, I'm not here to tell God what to do. I am here to receive my orders from Him. I need Him to transform my mind and change my heart. And he says this. Prayer is not bringing your list and asking God to sign on the bottom. Prayer is handing God a blank sheet that you have already signed and trusting Him to fill it out to obey what you are calling me to do. Dear friends, COVID has tempted us to live small lives, to think only about ourselves, and to not think about God's global purpose of getting the good news to our neighbors, to the city, and to the ends of the earth. And we are tempted to become more and more insular, more and more inward focused in this season. And we need to be shaken. We need to be awakened spiritually that the Spirit of God has given us gifts to be leveraged for His name. We feel empty. Many times we feel empty. But I've been reading this book, The God Smuggler. It's on the life of Brother Andrew. And he went behind the Iron Curtain back when communism was ruling in Europe. And as he was going back there, there were places all over that did not have the scriptures. There were churches that were gathering and pastors did not even have a Bible. And his whole aim was to get Bibles into these countries and to give them to these individuals so that they would have the scriptures. And I was just listening because the thankfulness that erupted in these individuals' hearts by just having a copy of God's Word. And here's what you didn't know. His brother Andrew would leave. It could be one week later. It could be just a few days later that the government comes in and confiscates all of the Scriptures. The eagerness they had to learn as much as they could as, as long as they had that Scripture. The urgency has left us, church. It's left us. We just think, oh, we've got plenty of time. My neighbor has plenty of time. No! The urgency is left that the end of all things is at hand. It's near. It's imminent. And he says, don't lose that urgency. Don't lose that urgency. And so I have given you gifts. And now you must be a steward is the word that's used. You must be a steward. You must use those gifts in the way I'm... I've given them to you. Let's say somebody gives you a lawnmower 
like sweet gift, right? What if you take this lawnmower and you decide I'm going to hang it on my wall as a wall decoration? First of all, that would be really difficult to mount, but you could try that, okay? People would look at it and say, that's awkward, and I don't think you're using that in the best way. What if you took the lawnmower and you decided I'm going to make it my dining room table, and I'm going to eat around the lawnmower, okay? All of this is just insane and stupid and crazy. Why? Because when you're given a gift of a lawnmower, there's two things that should happen with a lawnmower. You should mow and to be shared with others. And now he says here to you, here's the deal. He summarizes the gifts that he gives his people into two camps, speaking gifts and serving gifts. He summarizes all the gifts in these two camps. You got speaking gifts and you give to people. And he is saying every believer, every person who calls upon the name of the Lord, repents of their sins, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence. Everyone is gifted. So if God has given you a speaking gift, you must use that gift. Steward his grace and put the display of God's words out there. Isn't that what he says? He says it right here. Whoever speaks is the one who speaks the oracles of God. So if you've been given a gift with speaking in whatever way, shape, or form, you're doing it to highlight the giver. You're doing it to highlight the words of Christ. If you've been given a serving gift, you do it that highlights the God who serves you. You do it to display the heart of Christ. And when he says serve, he says this. You do it in the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, God gets the glory. Some of you, some of you, you're living two lives. You're trying to live one way outwardly, and then there's a secret you. There's a hidden you. And you're trying to live so right and good and moral on the outside, but the Spirit of God has not captured your inside. And you're exhausted. You're exhausted. It's like trying to run a marathon in five to six feet of water. You can barely trudge forward. You're exhausted because you're living two lives. You're trying to live a moral life without power. And God says, surrender your life. Surrender your life to me so that this fight of trying to live outwardly for the Lord is fueled with my power. It's still going to be exhausting. But it's different. You know his love. This is what he's saying. When you serve, you serve in the strength that God supplies. So that in everything, God gets the glory. As one pastor says, the giver gets the glory. So, as a church, we're being called. We're called to be many different voices. I sang in a choir in college. And it wasn't just a four-part. It was an eight-part choir. And so you had, you know, two basses, two altos, two tenors, two sopranos, and you all came together. And if people did not know their parts, it was a train wreck. It was a cacophony. But when everybody knew their parts, it was beautiful. And I just want to say, when he's laying this out, you've been given a gift. Use it for the glory of Christ. Don't try to be somebody else. And together... Understanding our own lane, understanding our own giftings, we come together as one body. One's a hand, one's a finger, one's a toe, one's a foot, one's a leg, one's a head. 
Jesus is our head, and he's going to bring us all together. And we are meant to, as one church, remember, the end of all things is at hand. Draw near to the heart of Christ so that then we can together, in one voice, display the heart of Christ to one another and to this world. Let me pray, dear friends. Father in heaven, as this passage ends, this is the, the prayer of my heart that to you be the glory forever and ever. Glory and dominion forever given to you. Father, please, please come right now. And in the stillness of this moment, God, I ask that some people's hearts in this space, they are stirred. They are stirred because your Holy Spirit is at work on your word. Some are being stirred for the first time to surrender their lives to Jesus. Father, bring repentance right now. Bring a turning from sin and a trust, like sitting in that chair, a trust that spiritually casts our whole lives into your arms and trust you. Trust your death in our place. Trust that you're the only one who died the death that we deserve. And you're the only one who could conquer sin, Satan, and death. You're the only one that is worthy of our lives. You're the only one that can take away our shame. And you're the only one that can fill us with purpose and hope. Father, take some individuals who have heard this and save them. Turn them. I pray that if that is you out there, that as I'm praying right now, I pray that you would, you would not harden your heart. You would bow your heart and call out to Jesus to rescue you. But God, right now, I continue in my prayer, and I pray. I pray in the stillness of this moment that God's endurance, love from giving in to what just feels so normal to cancel things. Oh God, make us love you. Help us to show hospitality. And Father, we ask that you would take your people and you would stir up such gifts that God, we would use them we would use them in our neighborhoods to speak of courage one another. We would use them as we... Now I just pray that you would stir in our